0: Hey, Spencer, you've been watching the Giro d'Italia every morning, like firing up the live feed on one of those sketchy websites that, I don't know, fills your computer with a Mac Keeper
1: virus. Mac keepers, the worst. No way, Fred. I've got a VeloNews issued laptop and I'm not going to compromise security of my data on that. thing. No way. I've got Fubo and I got it all set up on my Roku, watch it on the big screen, drink some coffee in the morning. It's sweet. And Fubo is really probably one of the best options for watching the Giro live this year.
0: Yeah, and right now they have a deal for uh, readers of Bellnews.com and fans of the VeloNews podcast.
1: That's right, 20 bucks for your first month of subscription to Fubo, check it out. We'll put the link in the profile for this podcast. You can go subscribe, watch the rest of the Giro. They'll have all the stages live. And then after that, if you wanna keep on subscribing to Fubo, they'll have pretty much every other major bike race this season. So uh, for, for bike race fans based in the US or North America, really the best way to catch all of the action.
0: We're back. We're back at the Vela News podcast. I'm Fred Dreyer sitting in a small closet sized studio here at Vela News Global Headquarters in Boulder, Colorado. I have a piece of advice for everyone. If you see a blue Astana car driving it, you jump out of the way. Ooh. Oh my gosh. That's right. I'm, you may have seen the video making its round of Astana nearly driving over. A flagman at the tour of Yorkshire. Dane Cash sitting to my right. Dane, you're shaking your head. Did you see that video? I did. I mean, the the flag was very clearly there. there was yeah, a guy was very clearly saying, "Hey, please don't run into me."
2: And they I, ignored that. Uh, just went
0: right on. We're happy that everyone is safe off of that one, but that was a scary one spencer were you scared
1: you know i i'm definitely scared for the safety of that flag man just a intrepid volunteer trying to help out yeah with his, oh lads just going out for a bit of racing to help with the race and oh dear me the kazakh team oh, wants to run me down oh, bollocks they're after me again yeah. but this is a bad look for astana which is apparently still kind of trying to figure out their sponsor situation i think i saw a story earlier today that maybe they've got it nailed down but uh Perspective sponsor is not going to like that look if uh, team cars driving around mowing down pedestrians at, uh, at at will.
2: Yeah, they probably really scrambled to sign that deal and make sure that
1: they mm. got the, the yeah. pen
2: on the paper before anybody saw that
1: video. Yeah, shotgun so. wedding type mm. situation. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, safety in the caravan is always an issue at these races. And, you know, we joke, but we obviously want all the teams and the riders to advise by this. But judging from that clip, I have no idea what was going on. But Asana, they were not... Driving safely. Afterwards, they released a statement. We are deeply sorry about the incident with our team car. The sport director that was driving the car contacted the race organizer directly after the race to send our apologies. We're trying to get in touch with the marshal as well. We're sorry and want this to never happen again. Guys, where do you think that marshal is right now? My mm. guess is he's down at the pub. Hiding. I, th- no, I think he's hiding in a basement fled somewhere of the country. Yeah. Oh,
1: I think I think he's down at the pub. <laughs> get me with away his from mates.
0: Get me away from bike racing. Or that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. You know the problem is they're driving on the other side of the road over there. That could be it. They're just, you know, could be. whoops, uh, not yeah. used to the blind spot.
0: So, you're tuned into the Bell News podcast. Fred Dreyer here with Spencer and Dane. We have a great show for you today. We're going to talk about the Giro d'Italia, which has been going on for a few days at this point. We're going to have a dispatch from our reporters on the ground at the Giro. We're going to hear from some interesting riders and team officials. We're going to talk about the Amgen Tour of California because that is coming up. America's only world tour race going on this coming week. As it always does. Uh, and then we're going to sit down with Dan Cavallari, our tech editor, to talk about interesting things like patents and why our favorite bike companies all these patents to protect their intellectual.
1: And why property. I don't have my damn 14 speed drivetrain yet, which yeah. I've been waiting on. That's true. He's going to answer some questions and I'm going to I'm going to really pin him down and make sure we get to the bottom of this. SRAM 28 that's coming. Yeah, or Shimano maybe or whatever.
0: So, guys, let's start off with the Giro d'Italia. We are recording this on Monday, the first rest day of the Giro d'Italia. Dane, catch the listeners up. What the heck's been going on in this race so yeah, far?
2: Yeah, I'd, I'd be glad to, Fred. So uh, we've had three three stages so far. The race, of course, started with much fanfare uh, in Israel, in Jerusalem. The race kicked off in a time trial, which Tom Dumoulin won by a mere two seconds over Rohan Dennis, thereby taking the initial pink jersey. But uh, Rohan Dennis cl- clearly had designs on that pink jersey. I think BMC's had an emotional month. Their, uh, their owner, Andy Reese, passed away, and the team, I think, really wanted to... Get a nice result. They had a whole pink bike all ready to go, and Rowan Dennis, the next stage, the very next stage, snatched some bonus seconds in the middle of the day to uh, jump into the pink jersey. Uh, And the following two stages after that time trial were both sprint stages, which Elia Viviani won both of. So Elia Viviani's now won two of the three stages so far.
1: Okay, Dane, be honest with us. On a scale of Nine and a half to 10. How excited were you that Elia Viviani won? I stages? was very, I will say, I, I will know say, you, you,
2: like that I will say you like that guy. I know that. I like Sam Bennett a lot too. Him. So there were, there was some dueling. Uh, how could you like Sam Bennett? Sam's given me some good interviews over bah. the years, Spencer. Come on. But after his performance on stage three, I have to say, i I don't know how strongly I feel about Sam anymore.
1: Disgraceful.
2: I, Sam almost pushed Elia Viviani into the barriers on stage three. and uh, Weak sauce. And so that's Elliot, like your
0: second favorite rider pushing your favorite rider. It was tough
2: to watch, you know, yeah. but Elia, he came through and won anyway. Uh, he won two pretty impressive victories there. I totally agree. I,
1: You know, the, the first win, pure patience. He was ready. He was just right where he needed to be, wasn't too far up in the group, and just hopped on the right wheel. It yeah, didn't perfect. have
2: a great uh, lead out there, and he came away and won that... <laughs> Won that stage anyway. Uh, and then, yeah, the, the next day, I thought that Sam Bennett was going to run him into the wall. He probably would have been relegated, I think, Bennett would have been if he'd won that stage. But probably he should have anyway. I mean, yeah.
1: like, that's, that's, like, you talk a regular sprinting, not holding the same line. He went from the right side barrier to the left side barrier yeah, yeah. As, as, a spect- as, as you're looking at it from the finish. And if that's not de- deviating from your line in the sprint, I don't know what is. Yeah, You know,
0: all this talk about sprint lines I'm starting to wonder did you guys forget that
2: Chris Froome lost 37 seconds on the opening time this
1: trial Sorry true. we got de- yeah sorry yeah. we got derailed there I was I, dude, I dude, got... Did we
2: forget dude, about that sorry, part Sorry I just love the sprinting so much. It's just so exciting watching 200 kilometers of not much happening. and then you know, I know the we're happy for Elia Viviani, but
0: Chris Froome had a bummer of a time he, trial. He
2: crashed in the, in the recon of the time trial. Nasty uh, crash. A nasty little crash there, rounding a corner. And uh, that, I think, affected his performance. And he did not do very well in that opening time trial. No, Terrible. He did not.
0: So that is where we find ourselves right now. Tom Dumoulin is seemingly in the driver's seat. Rowan Dennis is in pink. We have two stages for Elia Viviani. So guys, come at me. Takes. I want the good stuff. I want weapons grade takes from the first opening stage, the first three stages of the Giro. What do you got? Who wants to start off start off
2: with fire?
1: All right. So I admit I, I gave Dane his, his time to, to say Elia Viviani's awesome. And yeah, he want to. I'm two pretty stages. sure you
2: said Elia Viviani well, is awesome. I was, but, you know, yeah, I was yeah. you know, ahead, playing along, yeah,
1: yeah, being, yeah. being a good sport about it for sure. Good sprint wins. But face it, this is the weakest Giro sprint field in maybe 10 years. This sprint field, they're just a bunch of corn cobs. Come on. There's nobody really to stand up to Viviani. He's going to have his way with this race. How
0: dare you besmirch Sasha Modelo?
1: Come on. I mean, you look back at the previous Giros, the last few years, you got guys like Andre Greipel, Marcel Kittle, Caleb Ewan. You've got, of course, last year, Colombian superstar Fernando Gaviria, you know, back to Mark Cavendish. So many big sprinters have come to the Giro in years past. But this year, it's crickets. Come on. Like, I don't, I don't even
2: disagree. It's definitely Elliot Viviani versus everybody else here. I mean, so. good for him. Yeah. You know, yeah. hey, he's
1: he. it's not hard. It, it's not easy to win a race. It's not easy at all. So yeah. winning's winning, but still. Come on, sprinters. You got to show up sometimes.
0: All right. Yeah. Weak sprinter feel. That's a pretty spicy take. Okay. Dane, you okay. got a spicy meatball for me?
2: Yeah, I want to I want to th- throw in that uh, Mitchelton Scotch, Simon Yates, and uh, Esteban Chavez were not getting nearly as much pre-race hype as, as we were giving to Dumoulin and Froome. But after that opening time trial, which I would have expected them to lose a huge chunk of time in, Simon Yates coming in real hot in that opening TT.
1: That's really meta. So and your take is on our takes.
2: Kind of, yeah. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna bounce it back after we initially maybe were a little little soft on on them. I, I think they they deserve a little bit of love because they're they're looking pretty good to me. Because after that TT, there's just a lot of climbing, and both those guys are really really good at going uphill. And th- there are two of them on that one team. That's a pretty good advantage right there. So I think Medrano Scott the team you got to worry about now, especially if you're uh, Tom Dumoulin and Chris Froome, who are maybe I think hoping to take it. I don't want to say take it easy, but but uh, ride a more of a controlled race. Those two guys, I think, are both going to try to detonate the race on the mountains. And there are some mountains coming up this week.
1: Okay. Yeah, more on that in a sec. More on that in a sec. Okay, Fred. Um,
0: I have two hot takes. The first take regards... Chris Froome being 37 seconds down on Tom Dumoulin. And that take is, this giro hasn't even started.
1: Mm. No, it
0: hasn't even started. All this has been, not even the hors d'oeuvres, this has been like light cocktails before the hors d'oeuvres, before the main course. Well,
1: technically it wasn't even in Italy, so, you know, kind of... You know, start of out of jurisdiction when it comes to calling it the Giro.
0: right? It was a uh, a spectacle, not actual racing. So prelude. it was prelude. I am not at all worried about aperitivo. I think
1: would be the yeah, upper.
0: It was an aperitivo, yes. and you know what? A little spritz. Chris Froome spilled some of the aperitivo on his jersey, <laughs> and that's fine because we've seen this man. Um, I guess what the cycling comparison would be: chug uh, bottles of mm. of wine, mm-hmm. and that means win big races. So. One, yeah, I'm not at all worried about Chris Froome and Team Sky. I who, think they're going to be fine.
1: Who wins the drinking competition, Chris Froome or Tom Dumoulin? Oh my gosh!
2: Like a real drinking competition, I think Tom Dumoulin would probably yeah. win that yes. pretty I'm handily. I'm thinking He's like Dutch.
1: Raiders of the Lost Ark style, where they just are you know, mm, cross just the table just start from each other, just
2: shooting just doing shots. Uh, I still, I think Dumoulin's going to crush that one.
1: But Froome, he. He's a real competitor. Perhaps it's that true. could
0: be the 22nd stage that the are to tell you. Raiders of the Lost Ark shot-taking yeah. competition. I think like that if they
2: did that, there might be a need for a bathroom stop, which yeah. Tom Dumoulin has that down pat, and he knows yeah. how to do that. Fair, okay. right.
3: fair, fair.
0: fair. Uh, my second take is that, look, I'm very happy to have seen Rowan Dennis get into the pink jersey and win those sprint bonuses. But boy, it didn't really look like anyone was challenging from the GC. In fact, I heard a report that he had maybe talked to some of the other GC guys Mm. to be like, hey, you know, to sort of take the temperature of the room. You know, anyone going to go for this thing? And they didn't. And you know what? Kudos to him and the team for putting riders on the front and chasing down some of those brakes and getting him in the position to get those requisite seconds. But... uh, much would have much rather had the stage win so you know bmc kudos to you guys for getting the jersey but i think it would have been a lot better to get that jersey through a good old-fashioned stage win Mm. so that's where we find ourselves right now and dane like i said before this giro is not anywhere close to uh being over no we have had three stages of action And we have three monster stages coming up this week. And I think that we're going to have our first picture of what this GC battle is going to look like. With Thursday stage to Mount Etna, and then Saturday and Sunday stages. Both of which have uphill finishes, including the leg-cracking finish to Gran Sasso after a monster
1: 224-kilometer day.
0: Ouch. Ouch.
1: And they say long stages are dead in Grand Tours. Yeah,
0: not in the Giro to tell you. So guys, let's get some analysis going on. Let's focus on Etna and then the weekend stages. You know, Etna has been a very um, historical stage for the Giro. Uh, we've gone up this climb a few different times. Usually comes after a few crazy days of racing around Sicily. So how do we see this stage playing out? Do we think this is going to be a decisive stage? Or do we think... This is uh, going to be more of guys looking at each other.
2: I think there might be some looking at each other this early in the race. It's a very hard climb. I think it's the sort of climb that's going to see a bunch of guys dropped out of contention. But I don't know that we're going to see a guy like Chris Froome or Tom Dumoulin really pick up too much of a gap on a big rival. Because this early in the race, I just think the way we've seen Grand Tours race the last couple of years, there's not often been that much action the one exception of that rule has been occasionally has been chris froome who has tried to go for these you know killing blows like eight days into the race and then he just kind of mm-hmm. holds on to the jersey that hasn't happened so much in recent years that's how he won his first tour he and, and richie port like went out and just crushed on the first two mountain stages back in 2013 but i don't know that that's the same chris froome that we see these days these days i think is a little more conservative so I'm, I'm expecting a little bit less in terms of decisive racing and, and more of just guys that are maybe on the fringe Getting dropped.
1: Yeah, I agree with Dane. And, uh, you know, one astute listener pointed out last week that I believe the last time they went up at another was a pretty stiff headwind, which neutralized some of the GC action. Some of it just depends on weird little factors like that, where the wind's blowing on a day like that. And uh if it is a headwind, we might see pretty conservative racing, see another breakaway win the day. Uh this could be an opportunity for Rowan Dennis and BMC to rid themselves of the pink jersey at least temporarily, because it is a lot of effort for a team to have to control the group and ride for GC and be in charge if your if your man's in the, the pink jersey like that. And hey, Aetna seems like a decent place to let it go to maybe a breakaway rider or something and then see what happens over the weekend in the big mountains.
0: Yeah, I think the other thing that people forget about Aetna is that it's a wide-open road. Yeah, I that, remember yeah. it was it 2017, I believe, when Ilner Zakharin won a top, and it may be, I mean, it was 2016, it it made for really negative racing. It was windy, it was a wide-open road, guys would put in surges and attacks, and everyone would shut it down immediately because of how wide-open and exposed the road was. So, you know, we've seen Etna be decisive. Uh, Alberto Contador famously put a ton of time into his rivals there. I believe that was the 2011 Giro d'Italia. But I also am not expecting too much because of how early it is and because two days later yeah, we yeah. have an uphill finish. And then the next day we have the Gran Sasso stage, which is just a brute of a stage. To come this early in the
2: Giro. Yeah, I think that, that double whammy is going to really have people playing it a little bit more conservatively, just waiting for those two climbs. I mean, the, the stage eight climb is tough enough in and of itself. It's only rated as a Cat 2, but it's a really, really long climb. It's, it's basically uphill for the final 50K of that stage. And uh, after 200K, that's going to be a long one. And then the next day is just brutal.
1: Yeah, stage eight sort of the type of day where you could like put a big strong team on the front and grind down at a really hard pace mm. and just shed everyone. Hmm, I wonder what kind of team would yeah. do that sort of thing. Good question. Yeah, huh. kind of like a Tour de France style team mm. move to like really just just rail
2: everyone in the long run. The
1: well,
0: run. that would be consistent with Dane's theory that Chris Froome likes to stomp on people early. He does
2: like to stomp when possible and yeah. try to hold. He's on. a stomper. I yeah. think. I think stage nine is going to be an opportunity to stomp. Uh, that, that final yeah. climb is really, really challenging. Definitely. And it's it's uh, long and steep, and and it comes after 224, 25K. I mean, that, that's a tough one. Yeah, I agree.
1: Grand Sasso so definitely you got to watch that stage. Make sure you tune in for that one.
2: Well, we're not the
0: only ones who think that this year's Giro d'Italia is going to be decided uh, in part on these climbs. You know, after Chris Froome had his disappointing time trial our very own Andrew Hood caught up with his team director sportif Nicolas Portal to ask him about whether he was worried about Froome's performances. So let's hear from Portal.
4: Does it rattle him? A crash like that before a big important prologue time trial to have a crash? Does that affect him mentally?
3: Uh. I remember the first time we did a tour together in thirteen he crashed on a trial in Corsica, and <laughs> pretty badly and you know I mean yeah it's part it's part of the of the um, the job we set uh, but obviously yeah, before the the town trial then the end of day one it's not an easy one mentally to to manage, but he's a tough guy and uh, he knows what can happen, so I think he was ready straight away. and Nico, all good so uh so boom, we're back on the business and uh, we carry on.
4: How much, how much of a distraction has this Sabunama case been for Chris? It is it good to start racing now?
3: I mean, yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, you've been, guys, you've been on the Prince Conference and there's been a lot of questions about this more than on, on, the, on the cycling side, on the sporting side, so for sure, I don't know how much distraction is, but he is, uh, but he's a really hard hard man, you know, <laughs> and the mental is unbelievable, and uh, we, we're here to race, and now, you know, uh, just plays to the racing and uh, yeah, I think we we all we are ready, we all ready. So now we just we don't we don't even think about it. We just go for gas. Nicholas, how how did Chris look? Did he look stiff after that crash? <coughs> uh, no, if I didn't know he crashed before, I think he was pretty pretty good, really good, good on the corners, pushing him really really hard. So uh, no, I think he did, a, he did a good time trial. Obviously, yes, for sure that affected him a little bit his performance the crash, but I would not say he will still winning the the race the stage, so I think, uh, yeah, it's bad, it's not bad, it's good. Around
5: 20 seconds, is that a lot to start off, uh, the Giro d'Italia down on Tom Dumoulin?
3: Yeah, I think he's, so he was 34, I think, if I'm right, from Juan um, uh, Denis, so yeah, two seconds more. Uh, no, no, I mean, it's never nice, you know, to lose that much time on uh, Tom Dumoulin, but uh, yeah, the, the, the Giro is, uh, is quite hard, It's the mountains, and he's not the only one who is he got some time back to, uh, to take on uh, on Dumoulin, so the rest will be f- for sure interesting.
5: Was this expected? Did you guys think they'd come in and win this stage? Well,
3: sure. mm, a good question for him, but I think no. I was expecting he will be like this, quite close, and I think for us this is fine. But winning against a proper specialist, um, and you know, he knows he needs to to win the Giro, and if he need, if if Tom Dumoulin became his first first big GC contender. Uh, then you need to beat him not not on a tantrum on on a climb so on a on mountain so yeah let's see day by day how it's going to be
0: yeah doesn't appear to be terribly worried about that I mean I think it is something to be worried about the crash itself. We saw some videos appear online of Froome after the crash and he did see, uh, appear to be in pain and limping away from it and you know bumps and bruises add up over a grand tour. You don't want to start your grand tour off being in pain because riding that much just exacerbates it. But I guess I'm I'm in Portals' corner on this one. I'm I'm not terribly worried.
2: Yeah, I agree. I think uh the, the only thing to really worry about is whether there's lasting effects. Because when Chris Room has been in form and won Grand Tours, the margins are typically way bigger than that. And, and when they're not, when the, when the winning margin is only a minute, it, it's basically only because usually he's kind of played it conservatively and let his rivals claw back a little bit of time. Usually he kind of takes this big gap and then just kind of takes it easy kind of the last couple of days.
0: Here's a question I have for you guys. You know, we have written about Rowan Dennis Uh, Several times in the last few months, Chris Case had a great feature story on the training program that Rowan Dennis has been on over the last five years to to, to transfer him from being a track rider focusing on the individual pursuit, a three-minute effort, to a Grand Tour contender. And it's this, oh, God, it just sounds like this long, exhaustive physiological transition. Anyway, here's Dennis in pink. Um, How long do we think he holds it?
2: I would think he doesn't hold it long for the, the very fact that I think BMC doesn't want it for long. I mean, having it for one day is nice because then you get to say, yeah, we wore the pink jersey, and then you try to get rid of it quickly. I don't, Dennis doesn't need to be in pink, that's for sure. I mean, he just probably doesn't want to be in pink until after the final time trial, uh, and I don't think— I think there will be opportunities for him to give it up here in the somewhat hilly stages in Sicily uh, or certainly in the first mountain stage. I'm not saying he's going to get dropped and lose it for that reason, but he can certainly give it up to somebody else.
1: Yeah, I'm definitely seeing a few names in this kind of top uh, top twenty-ish uh, range of the GC where they're all uh, they're within about forty seconds of him, and I, I see a number of guys who could succeed on these hilly early stages in Sicily. Guys like you know Tim Wellens or or maybe Domenico Pozzovivo. One of those guys potentially could be hopping into pink.
0: I'm going to disagree with you guys. I think. That Rowan Dennis and BMC are going to try to hold it as long as possible. I'm not seeing. That, I'm not saying they're going to hold it for particularly long. But you know, in, the, in that story that Chris Case wrote, they talked about how Rowan Dennis is trying to become a Grand Tour favorite, a man capable of winning a Grand Tour. They don't feel like he's there quite yet because he hasn't dealt with the psychological stresses of being of leading a Grand Tour. So I almost see this as perhaps a test mm. where it's like, all right, Rowan Dennis, you're fit. You're strong. You're coming in as a Grand Tour leader. Let's see how well you can defend this thing. You know, you might not yet be ready to win a Grand Tour from a physiological standpoint, but mentally, can you deal with the stresses of uh, of running a team that's trying to win a Grand Tour?
1: Like *An Empire Strikes Back, when Luke tries to, like... Get the yeah. get the X-Wing out of the swamp, but he's not quite ready. But Yoda's like, well, maybe you can try and see. And like, yeah, it's like that, basically. Ex- exactly like that yeah. one.
2: But yeah. it didn't work out, though. No, me. it didn't. I don't know if it's going to work out for Rohan. Hopefully
1: either. he keeps his hands, too. I don't want him to have one of those mm. chopped off by a lightsaber. Who's maybe, Yoda maybe, in palmer. this
2: uh, scenario? Yeah, I'm, I'm struggling to come up with a good analog.
1: Neil Henderson. He's not wrinkly enough. He's, yeah. he's actually pretty baby-faced.
0: Well, we're going to be talking about the Giro d'Italia for the rest of the week. Guys, Spencer, you had you had a take about the uh, Giro's Israel start. Oh, okay. That I thought was a you little spicy. You want me spicy. to roll out a little bonus take for you? Bonus take.
1: To me, the Israel start was just... It added nothing to the Giro from a sporting pr- perspective. You, you got a short time trial in a technical downtown. Could be done anywhere in Italy. You got two pretty boring flat stages that were hot in the desert. I mean... You tell me, like, is there any way? Like, I, I don't, I don't see what it adds for for the sporting perspective for fans watching on TV. Yeah, it's kind of cool. The scenery's a little different, I guess. I don't know. I mean, there's deserts in Italy too, you know. I hear you. I, yeah, I just don't. You know, it, it's a gimmick. I think. I think it's a gimmick. And and uh, with all the hullabaloo and the risk of it, as well as the the uh, the logistics of getting these guys flying across the ocean to Sicily, it's just uh, I don't think it was worth it.
0: Yeah, I hear you on that one. I mean, it has been explained to us as a grand plan to unite the two holy cities of Jerusalem and Rome. It has been pitched as a wonderful international gesture to take the Giro outside of Italy, make you know, bring it to Asia, the first time a grand tour has left the European continent. Um, I, I'm with you that... It's from least'
1: it's not Asia.
0: From a sporting perspective, it didn't add a lot. Um, you know... I think that you can make a decent argument that it is part of a larger plan to bring the sport of cycling to Israel where there have been groups working on the ground to build cycling as a sport. The Israel, Israel Cycling Academy is one of these projects. I know there's a lot of junior projects there. And, um, you know, so it is it is part of this larger mission. Of course, then there's the financial side, which reportedly Israel paid $12 million.
4: Hmm.
1: To have the Giro come by? I would go ride in the desert for three
4: tw- days. Yeah, that three, helps three the days Giro,
1: for $12 really, million yeah. Yeah. in a yeah. way. That does. Yeah, okay. there's, yeah. there's 12 million is probably, probably about the right thing. Icing place. on the cake.
0: There's also the angle of having the media and the riders go to Israel for a few days and see what that, that's all about. And we caught up with Chad Haga, American rider, riding for Tom Dumoulin's Team Sunweb, about what his experience had been like through the first few days of the Jir d'Italia. So let's check in with Chad to see what he's been up to over in Israel.
4: Coming here uh, to this kind of holy land, a polemical place as well, in the sense of some of the politics going on right now. Um, I mean, you guys are here to do a job, of course, but does that... Does it kind of at you in any way, like, in terms of... Uh, yeah, there's personal... a little bit.
6: I wish we could race without that sort of thing over us, but uh, but we're, we're here, so, um, yeah, it's it's a little bit unfortunate
4: that that, that cloud is over the race. Because we also race in places like whatever, China or yeah. Qatar or these yeah, kind other of places the, that might have these
6: issues. Yeah, the Arab Emirates, and yeah, it's... It can't. It's not avoidable everywhere in the world. Um, but you know, maybe yeah, the optimist in me says maybe sport can can bring people together that little bit more and maybe help them to to take the next step in in settling those differences.
4: Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> that's the optimist. We have the Israeli Cycling Academy here as well. Obviously, we those guys are trying to promote the sport here yeah. in Israel, and it's kind of part of what uh, this whole project is as well. as is kind of introducing the sport of cycling to to a new country.
6: Yeah, and and I think there's potential there. There's certainly uh, at the parking lot where all the teams were starting their rides the last couple of days. There's certainly a, a strong contingent of Israeli cycling fans. Uh, so there's there's roots planted for
4: sure. So you guys had a chance to go in to see some of the holy sites. What'd you guys do? Uh,
6: was it last night? Yeah. Last night we uh, we took a taxi the, the one kilometer just to save our legs a little bit into uh, old Jerusalem and we saw the western wall which is really powerful to see something with so much history in it and uh, so significant for you know many religions uh, and walk through the city a little bit so it was we don't get to be tourists too much in this job. We see in passing some spectacular stuff, but to really get on the ground and see the sites is pretty rare. So there's certainly a lot left here unseen, but I'm glad you know, the, the biggest box was checked.
0: Yeah, so Chad was able to go see some sites, go to the Western Wall. Um, seemed like he also was cognizant of the controversy that had erupted due to, you know, Israel's international politics and the fact that having the Jiro here has shown a light on Israel's problems in, in, with international politics. Uh,
1: yes. Question. Yes. Is Sunweb really serious about winning the Giro with Tom Dumoulin if it's letting its riders go sightseeing? Come on. Oh, oh even Tom
2: Dumoulin went sightseeing. Oh, my God. Just like, ran, rode around Jerusalem not sightseeing. Serious. Not no, taking yeah. it
1: seriously at all. Not take, Not professional enough. Bill
2: Belichick would not approve
1: mm, of that no. move. Probably not, no. We're on to Sicily.
0: Uh, guys, before we uh, get off the topic of the Giro d'Italia, we have a dispatch from our men on the ground, Gregor Brown and Andrew Hood, They recorded this after transferring from Israel to Sicily, and they have some thoughts on the Giro start in Israel, the sights, the sounds, what they were able to see. So let's check in with Gregor and Hoodie.
4: Hi, this is uh, Andrew Hood here with Gregor Brown. Gregor. Tutuani. Tutuani. We're in uh, Bar Balzamo overlooking
5: the Med here in Catania. What a lovely place, Andy, and after a long day of traveling.
4: Yeah, we've had a crazy uh, 24 hours. We had to get up at 4 in the morning, get on a bus, drive 60Ks across the Negev desert, jump on some really kind of low-budget charter flight. But to, but to, be, fair, we, but to be fair, we slept most of the way. Slept most of the way, flew uh, into the shadow of Matt Etna, and now the Giro is back in Italy. What a, what a crazy couple of days we've had, Gregor. I mean, we flew in Tuesday night in Jerusalem. There's a lot of polemics, a lot of uncertainty about what really was going to happen and how the race was going to unfold. But what was kind of your big picture takeaways from what happened in Israel for three days of the Giro?
5: Well, uh, the, uh, the big thing is that, you know, Tom Dumoulin. He took his first win as a world champion in, in, those, in the rainbow jersey. Uh, the other thing is Rowan Dennis now has a Grand Tour jersey, a, a leader's jersey from all three Grand Tours. And then we see Viviani just you know spreading his wings in his new home, quick-step floors, and, and getting the opportunity he didn't have in Team Sky. So a lot of big things happening on the sporting side. And really, we never even heard any of the whole thing with the Palestinians and the, the whitewashing with sports and, uh, and Israel. So we're here safe in Italy now.
4: We, made, we did indeed make it back safe and sound. There were a lot of polemics that we heard really from outside the Giro bubble. Sometimes when you're actually in the middle of it, you get a very different perspective, I think, a lot of times when you're on the ground in these experiences. That's one thing that I've had over my lifetime, both journalistically as well as just kind of personal journeys, you know, going to places that come with a lot of loaded uh, uh, connotations of what they're going to be like. You know, I came to Israel... You know, not really knowing what to expect. Having said that, we did not have a chance to go to these uh, embattled regions of, of Israel. The race still steered well clear of those places. But, I mean, my impressions of Israel were mostly positive, of course. But that's just what you see in the ground. You know, we weren't going up there to the West Bank and... and uh, and going down to to the Gaza Strip,
5: we did uh, we did get lost there we, <laughs> we uh, Luckily, I, I corrected the navigation at the last moment. I think we might have ended up in Gaza. But the country is locked and loaded. Even at the breakfast buffet, I saw a guy carrying, shouldering a uh, automatic machine gun while he's getting his eggs and his uh, his bacon there for breakfast. It's it's definitely heavily heavily fortified and rightly so with neighbors uh, like Jordan and Egypt, and so on, <laughs> ready to launch when they can at Israel but sporting side, uh, great great race but it's even better that we're back back in in the Giro's homeland in Catania for the four stages tomorrow
4: yeah the giro kicks back into gear finally on italian roads on tuesday but just going back to the israeli experience i thought it was unique you know it was kind of have a a lot of landmarks with this experience took the giro for the first time really beyond europe technically israel's part of the middle east we've been to the middle east before in races in qatar the world champions were there a few years ago oman abu dhabi and dubai but i was impressed really with how big the crowds were uh usually when the racers have gone to places in the middle east there's more camels than fans but uh, i was pretty impressed really in every day of the racing and of course across the negative desert yesterday there weren't a lot of folks but at the starts and the finish man it was it was impressive
5: yeah there was there was a lot of fans and even going into stage three yesterday you could see it all the fans were, were getting in there trying to get a look at the riders and uh, also benefiting from the fact that because the, the start was over there in Israel the teams didn't have their buses so it was a much stripped down version of, of, a, of a world tour race. You saw riders changing uh, intense uh, set up beside the team cars and so everybody was more accessible and that was good for the journalist and, and, and good for the riders. Uh, but how cool was it to have a stage finish in Tel Aviv to go across the Ramon crater down the and and just see a, a bit of the you know these countries and, and also it helps uh, cycling develop in those areas and of course puts a little bit of money in the organizers pocket RCS is rumored to have, have, have received 10 million maybe up to 20 million uh, not shackles but euro for that and uh, Andy's shaking his head because he knows the value of a shackle shackle
4: it was uh, it was an interesting uh, adventure needless to say. But also really kind of raises that question, you know, how far can these Grand Tours go? You know, we were both, Gregor and I were both talking to people the last few days about is already the Giro, is a three-hour flight coming back in today plus all the bus ride and going to the airport and everything, is that really too much for a Grand Tour? I mean, Gregor, do you think that a Grand Tour should go to New York City, should it go to Tokyo or a place like Columbia? You know, Imagine having the Giro in Colombia, I mean, they would just go absolutely bonkers.
5: Yeah, I'm not. I'm not for this trend, to be honest. I mean, I think it's kind of pushing everything a bit too far. And I think here we saw in some instances where the Grand Tour and the organization was kind of stretched to the limit. And a little bit further, would have probably burst. Uh, probably a drive in yesterday at stage three, we saw some of those things that was were stretched to the limit. I think going to to New York City, if with the year went to the U.S. or if, if to Japan, as there's a rumor to run Fuji it would be too much and also you're looking at the time zone change as well here we only had a one hour time zone which you and I can truly feel today but like imagine if we had the six hours over to the east coast in the US it would be too much for for the riders you'd have to throw in an extra uh, day of rest or something and then the other thing is that maybe you know these organizers should organize different you know events uh, you know three day stage race on the US organized by RCS Sport Using their clout to bring in some of the big riders like Nibali or uh, Froome, and, and go that route instead. What's your take, Andy?
4: That's a very good idea to do the Grand Fondos, bring in Nibali for an event. That's that's another great idea. I, I mean, personally for me, I'm a futurist, Ron. I like to look in the big picture, really, what's possible in the world. I think you know why not why not bring the grand why not bring a giro to the united states and, and let it race not just two or three days but let it, let it run for a week then you fly back you do you, you sandwich those rest days together you do a week in the States, you do two weeks back in Italy. You know, why not? I think it would be great because, I mean, imagine having Sagan, Froome, Quintana, all these superstars, not racing just in an expo event, like a little three day, little parade around San Francisco, but having these guys really racing for the Mayorosa and having them do it in the United States or having them do it in, in China. I'm, I'm all for that. Let's see what happens. And I know there's a lot of criticism against that, that, oh, you know, the European is the, where the sport belongs, and that's its, its legacy, and that's heritage. But man, the world's a big place and I think the cycling should go to all those uh, far away corners. Anyway, like talking talking about uh, the sport, what do you take away from this weekend? I mean, we saw Froome. Man, he had a crazy couple of days there in, in in Jerusalem for poor Froome. You know, he got hammered by the media in that press conference. All the, the, the Brit journals came in and they were just kind of going after Chris about that Sabunamal case. Then he goes out in training the next day, crashes right before his race. Then he loses 37 seconds to Tom Dumoulin
5: yeah I mean Froome's had a rough start and he'll be welcoming uh, this return to Italy just kind of a bit of return to normalcy in, in, in his uh, everyday uh preparation and, and how he pro- approaches the stage just getting the sky death star back there wheeling that that big mammoth bus b- blacked out windows it looks slick doesn't it with the antennas on top and the smoke out the back and the fires out the front that's that, that part. <laughs> the last part, no. But I uh, just—he's uh, yeah, off to a rough start. He says it's only road rash, but uh, we're hearing that maybe you know he, he's uh, kind of hiding some of it back that maybe his hip hurts or, or there's something a bit more serious. I kind of—I kind of agree with Froome. I, I believe him. I think it is only road rash. He seems to be spinning along fine, and and if it was more, I think it's passed already by now. We should—we're going to see that in the, in the coming days in Sicily because we're we get two three-star days and then a four-star day up to Mount Etna. But what a rough start, but uh, a sort of great start to a grand tour to have Froome on the back foot, 30 seconds, 37 seconds down to the last year's uh, champion, Tom Dumoulin. We're, we're going to be in for a heck of a race now.
4: Yeah, that's exactly right. I think it's sort of set the race up for a pretty exciting run up into uh, you know into Sicily, then going up kind of the middle of the boot of Italy all next week, and then Zocalo kind of looming in the that to open up that final nine days of racing in northern Italy. I mean, really, when when have we seen Froome already thirty seven seconds behind a really direct GC rival? I don't think we actually ever have. So, and perhaps uh, Sky doesn't really know how to race that way because they're always kind of racing I think they always race aggressively it probably won't change that much how they race because they always do kind of want to attack off the front but they need to attack it and gain time we'll see if, if perhaps uh, Dumoulin tries to defend that as opposed to uh, maybe trying to himself go on the, on the offensive but there's uh, you know a lot of good stories here in terms of uh, that GC battle man having Froome here normally that would be such a huge story it's been overshadowed by the Sabutuma case. A lot of people think that Froome shouldn't even be here. A lot of the riders are kind of poo-pooing it privately. But, you know, when the race is on, Froome's going to be there. And uh, it's going to be a pretty good battle, I think. It's a pretty good uh, quality field here for this GC battle for the pink jersey. I like my poo-pooing in private.
5: That's good. Yeah. I'm glad they're poo-pooing it in private. Uh, yeah, Froome, what, what, it's interesting. Dumoulin, he had a healthy lead last year on, on that Stelvio stage, too. We all thought Dumoulin was going to easily ride into his uh, into his uh, pink jersey win again, and, and that, we are speaking of poo poo. Uh, and he had to stop for that emergency poo poo break, and and then it became a even closer of a race. But Dumoulin pulled it off and and and, uh, and beat uh, Nairo Quintana on the final day in that time trial, Milan. So is uh, Dumoulin going to keep that healthy lead now? And if and if he has that healthy lead, thirty seven seconds, that's a good start of a Chris Froome. And uh, we believe that it's really Dumoulin. Dumoulin who could take the challenge to Chris Froome. Other than that, I mean, Fabio Roux perhaps. Thibaut Pinot, perhaps. Pozo probably not. What's your take?
4: Yeah, I think it's, I think it's going to be a shaping up to really, I think, between a battle between Dumoulin and Froome for the pink jersey. Assuming those guys stay healthy and don't have health problems, don't crash, stay in the picture. And then that, really that battle for, for third place is going to be uh, kind of a dogfight between four, five, or six guys. Um, it's interesting racing here in Sicily, Gregor. Uh, going up Matt at Matt in a couple of days. But, man, these roads here in Sicily, they're kind of funky down here. A lot of, I think, uh, you know, it's coming out of the winter. I think a lot of dust on the roads. A lot of maybe some olive oil. It's, it's an interesting part of the world really down here. I mean, it's almost like another continent down in Sicily. I don't know if anybody has actually been to Sicily would understand that. It's a little bit different even from the rest of racing in Italy. I remember talking last year to Max chiandri the Italian sport director at BMC, and they said their goal was just to get off of Sicily, and last year it actually started in Sardinia, just to get off both these islands with, with their GC possibilities and attack. I can't imagine that's going to be any different for all the GC guys this year.
5: Yeah, it didn't work. Uh, Ron Dennis crashed uh, on the Aetna stage last year when we were here in Sicily. We had two stages. I think we came down from Sardinia and that was that was a heck of a travel too, even if we didn't change countries or time zones, but just coming from Sardinia to Sicily with two of those stages. This year yeah, three stages here. I mean, and, and it's special racing here because uh, the Tifosi are just crazier here, uh, more passionate, uh, and uh, and then the roads are yeah, they're they're slicked down with olive oil, diesel, diesel uh, gas that's slipped out on the road. We have a we have a nice diesel Skoda Fabio though, it's <laughs> a nice car we picked up today. Uh, but the roads are terrible down here, and they're terrible really until you get further up in the north. But even there, after the cold snap that we had this winter, a lot of the roads are have potholes that uh, the the organize, organization will work with the local organizers to get most of those paved over new asphalt but still those holes pop up and riders have to be very attentive so down here in the in Sicily check for something really so we're going to see something mix up happen in the next few days maybe even before the Aetna stage and the Aetna stage usually ends up being kind of a bummer because it's wide open a lot of winds so the riders are afraid to attack too early but maybe already on uh, Tuesday and Wednesday we could see a change in that uh, for, for sure in the, in the lead but maybe it's some sort of classification mix up
4: yeah I'm just personally happy to be back in Italy, we, have, we had a nice cannoli this morning, Gregor a cappuccino just to kind of you know crack the ice there and get him back, loved Israel the food was very good there, hotels were great, ambiance was great in Israel, polemics aside of course but the Giro is Italy, I mean for me the, Italy, the Giro is I think probably my favorite race, my favorite stage race of the year without a doubt. I think the tour has become this kind of big monster, there's too many people. Hoodie gets grumpy in July. The Welta I think is probably the most exciting race, but it just doesn't quite have the gravitas that I think, uh, or the passion that the tour and the Giro have. So the Giro kind of has that combination of it's an important race, it's the first Grand Tour race of the season and it's the fact that it's in Italy. I mean, imagine how amazing it would be if the Italians had thought of the Grand Tour concept before the French did. Oh. Yeah, yeah. I don't know, maybe it would, maybe
5: it would be the opposite. We'd have uh, all the attention here in Italy and, and we'd, we'd hate the Giro d'Italia and we'd be looking forward to the, the Tour of France every year. Perhaps, I don't know. But this this race does have a special charm and it, it is probably my favorite. It ties equally, maybe, perhaps with the Vuelta a Spagna, but the food is impressive. We had the cannoli this morning and... Uh, Coffee, a cappuccino, and we're, we're looking forward to well the lunch, we're looking forward to dinner, just the hotel that's overlooking the bay here. We got the people out there in the water, the sun's out, uh guys are zipping around on Vespas, there's fresh fruit stands on the side of the road, strawberries are being sold.
4: <laughs> What's not to love? Yeah, indeed, what is not to love about the Giro or really, you know, I have didn't to be- mention the wine. The Nerd Avala down. Here. Oh we don't drink wine, Ron. The uh but you know we can't complain. This is the, we have this. We're very blessed to have these jobs, and uh, we thank you very much for listening. We're going to wrap it up here from uh, Sardegna, or no, excuse me, from Cecilia, from Catania, yeah. and uh, we'll be talking. We'll be checking back in during this period of time. Thanks for listening. Yeah, thanks, Andy. <laughs>
0: Okay, well, they sound like they're having a good time over there. How much uh, grappa do you think? Well, not grappa. It would have been just red wine. Probably beers maybe by this point. Yeah, Yeah, probably for them. Could have been
1: wine earlier, but you switched to beer after a certain point. Um, Okay. Yeah, good for them. Stay
0: hydrated. Good for them. Unwind a little, boys. Yeah, good for you. Uh, Guys, speaking of wine country, (laughs) Dane and I are headed out. To California wine country here pretty soon.
2: That was a real nice. That was good. The Amgen Tour California to the rolling hills of Long Beach for the first stage. Yeah, you know the great wine wine. country. Not a lot of
1: wine there. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) L.A. area great for wine. Great for wine down
2: there.
0: (laughs) Uh, We're going to be out there for the Amgen Tour California, which runs this Sunday through the following Saturday. It is another year of starting in the south, finishing in the north, and it's another year in which. Time trials will probably decide the race. We have seven stages, starting with a circuit race in Long Beach. The second stage finishes atop Gibraltar Climb. Mm, That's a big one. Yeah, that is going to be one of the deciding features of this year's Amgen Tour California. It was uh, part of the course two years ago, 2016, won by Julian Alaphilippe in a daring attack to bring back Peter Stetna and that move ended up winning ala Philippe the overall, and at that point, that was one of the
2: biggest victories for ala Philippe yeah. yeah it's a uh, it's they're not wasting any time getting into the tough climbs right gibraltar is it's not a super long climb. it's twelve k, but eight percent average gradient. I mean that's and there's there's not like there's just a lot of stretches of resting either. It's a tough one. It's going to break a lot of legs, and it's not really going to give anybody any chance to build their way into it because it happens so quickly in the race.
0: Yeah, it's going to be an interesting day on the bike, too, because the race will be passing through uh, the areas outside of Ventura, Ojai, Montecito. These are some of the areas that were hit by the wildfires and mudslides. And we actually had some photos sent to us by our photographer, Casey Gibson. He was doing recon in the area. And, oh, my gosh, some of these roads were completely washed away bridges out and so the tour of california actually has had to redo some of the route in order to get to get the riders to the base of gibraltar
1: yeah stay tuned for that we're gonna have a little feature about that route change and how the fires impacted the region on velonews.com uh that's probably gonna be coming up uh late this week early next week just in time for that big stage on monday
0: so the next day stage that stage th- uh three starts in king city which is out in the middle of the central valley farming community ends at laguna seca Outside of Monterey, where we have Sea Otter. Spencer, you and I were just at Laguna Seca. Yeah. And, you know, it finishes with a pretty stout but short climb to the racetrack and then a circuit of the racetrack where they finish. I got to say, that climb sucks.
1: That climb's no joke, but remember, they did finish up here, I think, a few years ago. Peter Sagan won up there, so it's not so selective that only pure climbers will make it over and get onto the racetrack, but... Yeah, that climb's a brute. It's it's definitely going to be, be a tough one.
2: It's so a 10% grade. Uh, yeah. Even if it doesn't have a GC impact, I mean, it's going to be a fun one to watch. Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah that yeah. was a great stage. I remember that being really exciting to watch it. Uh, I think that was 2016. It was
2: 2016,
1: and yeah. that was
0: a, yet another stage... Where the young men from Team Action Hoggins Berman right. were throwing haymakers at some of the world tour guys. And
1: thank goodness they're back in this race. Last year Action wasn't in the race because there was that weird transition with it becoming a world tour event. That year action was continental team. They couldn't get into it. This year they're pro-continental. They'll be there. I'm sure they'll be Firing on all cylinders for this race, ready to show everyone what they missed last year. And, you know, speaking of Gibraltar, just going back for a sec, let's all remember that uh, Nielsen Palace lit up that climb early on uh, back in in 2016. And uh, he really kind of came into his own that day when we realized, oh, man, this is one of the top young climbers in the U.S. right now.
0: Yeah, and he's going to be back with Team Lotto NL Jumbo. And uh, we're going to be looking for Palace to do some damage. So stage four. I think stage four is going to be the decisive day. That is the individual time trial. It's 35 kilometers long. There's a couple little bumps in it, but it's predominantly flat. It's uh, around the Morgan Hill, San Jose area. Um, so this is yet another year where the empty tour of California, you know, the decisive stage is going to be an individual time trial. I don't know. Anybody, anybody have any takes on that? Wild hot takes?
1: It you know unfortunately it means that the race feels a bit formulaic where you look at the start list and you figure out the five riders give or take who can ride a really good time trial and you know that they're probably the ones who will be in the conversation for gc there's not usually a lot of wild cards get in play there's not usually a chance for a really you know audacious breakaway to make a difference and shake up the gc but uh you know, it, it still is a pretty pure test, though, of some of the best GC riders, which is a good thing because that means, you know, you'll really see probably the best all-around rider win this thing
2: at yeah. the end of the week. I usually like having a, a flat, and this is a pretty flat time trial, I usually like having a pretty flat time trial thrown in among climbing stages because I think it's usually kind of boring if it's all climbing and it doesn't, it, it, generally you have like one rider establishes himself as the dominant climber and then that guy goes on to win the race. And whenever you have a time trial like this, it's a pretty flat one. Generally, I think you get, yeah, a, it's a balanced winner, and it's not a static thing where you kind of know going in, okay, this guy's climbing better than everybody. We got, we're going to give the race to him. We know what's going to happen. At least now we have this sort of uncertainty of can you balance both the time trial and can you get up Gibraltar? Can you get up uh, the climbing? There's some climbing stages a little later in the week as well.
0: Yeah, so the other decisive stage, well, I wouldn't call it a decisive stage. The other stage that could impact GC is stage six. That starts in Folsom and finishes at South Lake Tahoe. There's a ton of climbing on the day. I believe something like 14,000 feet of total climbing, something monstrous like that. And there's a little kicker at the finish. I think this could be a day where a breakaway could stay away. I also think this is a day where uh, some of the GC favorites could lose the race. Absolutely. I don't know if you're going to win the race here, but I think this could be one where... Boy, some uh, some pressure applied by a strong team could really do some damage. Well,
2: this is a stage where I think if a good time trialist happens to put in a great ride on that on that TT stage, this stage is the one that's going to drop that guy out of the general classification because they climb from Folsom, which is kind of in the heart of the Central Valley, and it's 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 only 120 meters above sea level, all the way to Lake Tahoe at. Uh, it's like 6000 feet above sea level. No, this two, is 2000
1: meters, yeah. Yeah, it's
2: a long long way to go.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's the altitude is always the X factor. You never know yeah. how these guys are going to handle that kind of altitude. Yeah. A lot of a lot of them actually have been training around Lake Tahoe or even here in Boulder uh to prepare for the for the Tour of California because they know the how critical it will be to perform at altitude on that specific day.
2: Yeah, that that uh, last like I don't know, 30 40 kilometers to this kind of a one two punch of climbs which is was just going to make it Interesting to watch. Again, even if it doesn't have a huge GC impact, I think – there is this cool little Category 1 and then a Descent and then a Cat 3 finish, which should have some fun implications for just the stage battle.
1: That's That's got action written all over it to me. I, I guarantee you an action rider wins this stage.
0: So now one of the storylines that always comes out of the Amgen Tour California is the battle of the domestic teams versus the European teams. Last year, that was slightly diminished because we only had two Continental teams, Jelly Belly and Rally, in the race. Rally did uh did make a make a name for the Continental teams by winning two stages. Uh, this year, though, I feel like this battle is back in a big way because we have Hagens uh, Berman action. We have Holowesko Citadel Rally. We also have Team United Healthcare. So we have a number of American teams that are going to be trying to win stages, have their guys finish high up in the GC. And it really does bring back that element that, I mean, I remember every year at the Amgen Tour California, like looking through the top GC to see who was the top domestic rider.
2: Yeah, and then, uh, not an American, but another uh, GC rider I think worth paying attention to, Sky's bringing Egan Arle Bernal to the race. Uh, This is a guy that they're really excited about. He's somebody that I think Sky is very happy to have winning stages this year to maybe divert some of the attention away from, let's call it a little bit of negative press that Sky's had so far this season. Uh, Bernal is this really young extremely talented climber who is also not a bad time trialist and You don't always get both of those things in one package uh, And I think Bernal's got a bright future. He's going to be at the Amgen Tour of California Not going to be an easy guy to beat if he's in form.
1: Columbia national time trial champion. Hmm? Yeah And we all know that country really churns out the time trial. Yeah
2: Well, they do turn out a lot of good climbers and he is certainly one of them So the fact that he is even decent at a time trial, I think that's a that's a big
1: no. Oh, yes. I joke you No, know, it's fair he's yeah, he's one to watch. So it, it could, could be, be a, a it could be a wild card. It
0: could be a battle of Bernal versus TJ versus Stetna
1: hmm. versus
0: Paulus Boswell, <laughs> Bookwalter maybe Boswell yeah. Bookwalter. Yeah.
1: yeah, and then which... I think Bookwalter's probably going to be riding in support of TJ, but yeah. we'll see.
2: Adam Yates is another interesting one. He's c- sort of coming back from an injury, pretty gnarly injury as well, but. If he's healthy, that's a very, very talented rider as well. I think the other storyline here,
0: though, is that other than the GC guys, the Amjet Tour of California really has turned into the pre-Tour de France sprinters battle. It is the place where all of these sprint trains look to iron out their uh, wrinkles before unleashing themselves in the Tour de France. Last year, we saw Quick Step win a stage with Kittel before going on to winning five stages of the Tour de France. And this year, we have all-star lineup of sprinters.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and I mean this gets into my my take on how the Giro's got a weak sprint field. I think this is maybe one of the reasons why all these sprinters want to go to California. It's a little better weather, you know. They can go to America. It's a little more relaxed, big hotel rooms, and uh, yeah, you look at that start list. It's pretty. It's pretty loaded. You got Cavendish, you got Gaviria, Kittle. Who else do we got? Guys? Caleb, Ewan. Caleb Ewan. Caleb Ewan, sir. Mm,
2: yeah. Sagan, I mean, if you want to include him in the sprinter conversation, yeah, I mean, yeah. he's yeah.
1: He, why why not? Alexander Kristoff so as well stages in this gotta, race already. Yeah, Kristoff, Kristoff's yeah. not going to win anything, but yeah, he's there.
2: Cold blooded take.
1: <laughs> ah, come on, Christoph against it. any of those sprinters, like he's just yeah. had he hasn't shown himself like that. He needs a tougher race. Can Honestly, he, those races, I mean, the stages, I think they're just a little too short for him, and and he needs something to really grind people down, like. You know, when he was second at Worlds last fall, it's mm. a long race, and that, yep. that does yep.
2: him well. It's true.
0: Can you imagine a, a room with Dane interviewing Alexander Kristoff and Elia Viviani at the same time? What it's, if what <laughs> if I did that
2: while playing Spencer Audio and asking them for their opinion <laughs> on Spencer's takes? What do you Ooh. think of uh, Spencer's opinion on this, Dane's, uh, Alexander?
0: Dane's cycling heaven oh. right there. Well, it's the MJ Tour California. We're going to have some updates from the race. This coming week, because Dane and I will be out there. Guys, before we get out of here, let's uh, catch up with Dan Cavallari. Talk about patents. We have Dan Cavallari, our tech editor for this final segment of the podcast. And uh, is Spencer, w- you know, what's yeah, going on over there? I'm
1: glad that Dan showed up because, Dan, I'm a little TO'd. Uh-huh. I'll tell you something about I have been waiting for like over 10 years for a 14-speed drivetrain from Shimano. They, they did a patent back in 1999, said they were going to do 14-speed. Where the heck is this dang drivetrain? I want it now
7: for my bike, Dan. <laughs> Well, don't don't go selling your Campy 12-speed just yet. It, it, may, it may be a while and it may never come. Uh, and that's the thing with patents is it's fun to dream uh, about what might be coming our way, but it doesn't always mean that there is a product coming our way. Sometimes patents are uh, designed to protect intellectual property. Uh, and sometimes they're just something that uh, a company thinks, well, we have a product here. It might be good. We're going to patent it just in case it is good. And then it could turn out to be a dud. So... This
0: conversation is uh, poignant right now because in the last few months, we've seen a number of patents come down in the bike industry, two from Shimano, one from SRAM, uh, patenting all sorts of interesting technologies. We have a disc brake rotor cover. We have a pivoting chain ring. We have hydraulic brakes as part of a DI2 system. And that got us talking about the concept of patents in the bike industry. And Dan, you have a piece up on VelaNews.com about why companies go through this process. Mm -hmm. I think it's really interesting that the process doesn't always mean
7: a product is going to be made. Right, and I think that just comes down to how products are designed, right? You come up with a good idea. uh, That first good idea may not be the way that final product ends up looking, but you have to go through that experimental process. And if you think you're onto an idea, you want to patent that so that you have control over that idea. Uh, that might just be to prevent somebody else from coming up with that idea first. It might be because you, you know this is going to work and you want to market it, so you've got to protect your, your, uh, your developments. And a patent is a very long, arduous process, so they don't take this lightly. I mean, it can take up to three years to get a process uh, the patent completely processed. Uh, so when we see these big patent dumps, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that in six months you'll be seeing that product, but sometimes you will. Uh, it's fun to dream you know, that that's what's coming down the pipe. But as is the case with Shimano's uh, 14-speed drivetrain, that patent was filed in 1999. And now we've just gotten up to 12-speed on a Campy cassette.
0: So for the layman, Dan, what is the purpose of filing one of these patents?
7: What role does it serve as part of the development and production process? Think of it as protection of your idea. Uh, So oftentimes, you know, Shimano is a great uh, business in that in that regard because they are very good about patenting the ideas that they have and so when uh, a competitor tries to enter that space they have to read through all the patents that Shimano already holds and they either have to license that stuff or they have to create something completely new and that that is a very good business practice because it protects your intellectual property Um, so it's it's basically protecting your ideas uh, and those ideas have to be new. They can't just be some logical extension of something that already exists. It has to be new and innovative. That's part of the process. Uh, you, you, submit that to the patent office and they determine whether your idea is actually a new idea or if it's just a logical extension of something else. Uh, so for example, if I was developing a car tire that had bigger treads than everybody else. That's probably not patentable because it's just a logical extension of, of what already exists.
1: Yeah, and so in your story from last week, Dan, I, you provided a pretty good example of how um, SRAM had to had to find a totally new way to do an electric drivetrain to to get around the Di Two patents, which mm-hmm. is of course the wireless mm-hmm. eTap yeah. shifting. Um, are there any other examples like this that are that are that are interesting to consider and sort of illustrate that? I'm thinking. I'm thinking maybe like the FSA drivetrain. It hasn't really come to market yet, but it seems like that might be one.
7: Yeah, yeah. I think everybody who's tried to enter the drivetrain space has run into that that situation. And now with SRAM being a major player, it's even more complicated because they were the first to market with uh, a wireless system. And so with FSA, they wanted to do wireless and their system is wireless, sort of. Uh, Yeah. They had to come up with a different way to make their system wireless. So there is actually wires in that system Uh, but the way the shifters activate is a wireless system. So they had to actually work around a lot of patents and that's kind of why you'll see a lot of drivetrains come and go, you know, they, people will try to find the next big thing, the next good thing. And they're trying to weave through this very, very narrow path and a narrowing path of, of what's already been done and what's been patented, but. The key here is that patents do expire eventually, and so uh, you know you can you can get to a point where those technologies do become available to everybody else. I think you know, we we can't under, uh, undersell
0: how important that is. If you look at all arenas of bicycle technology, there are uh, important innovations that have been patented that tend to steer the market. I'm thinking about mountain biking linkage, for example. If you look at the design of all the dual suspension mountain bikes out there, it's all of these technologies. technologies. Technologies that are having to work around what has the ideas and technologies that have already been set in stone as patents, and there have been these legal cases over the years of companies or individuals taking each other to court because they feel like their design
7: is a little bit too close to the patented design. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we saw that with, uh, I mean, specialized FSR suspension for a long time. You would see other branded bikes you know, from other companies with a little logo on the inside of the chainstay that says buy specialized because that FSR uh, suspension system was so similar to what these other companies were doing. So yeah, I think it's a very important uh, business aspect to protecting what is yours. So what do we make of these
0: three patents then that we saw come down the pike in recent months? The first one is the disc brake rotor cover. I mean, do we think that this is the invention that's going to save all of our friends in the world tour from getting
7: scrapes and cuts on their knees and races?
1: Or feet. Yeah, You know, chopped up shoes, that type of thing. Mm
7: -hmm. Uh, Personally, I think it's much ado about nothing. I think this is a reaction to a problem that is not as big of a deal as people think. But, you know, to allay people's fears, it's one way to address um, that thing that could feasibly happen. I guess. Well,
1: and, and the UCI might simply put a rule out right. eventually to try to, to, to make people more comfortable with them. You know, any like lingering safety concerns. I mean, after all, you look at motorcycle racing, they do cover the rotors for motorcycle racing. Right. So it, there is a logical analog there, mm. but for the average consumer, I think you're right, Dan, it might be a bit overblown. Yeah. Um, what, let's see here. So the, the SRAM, SRAM's got a, Pivoting chain ring. Yeah. That's kind of wacky. I'm
7: pretty. I'm pretty interested in this one. I think yeah. this is pretty cool. And you know, SRAM has been a pioneer of the one by drivetrain. Uh, and one of the complaints that people have had is that the chain line can get pretty pretty wonky uh, in the extreme gears. You know, basically as as you shift through that very wide ranging cassette, uh, your chain is not going in a straight line of the chain ring. So one of SRAM's patents that they filed recently uh, basically creates a system where the chain ring pivots to sort of match the chain line in the extreme gears. So you're keeping your straight your chain as straight as possible, and that helps reduce wear on the drivetrain essentially and uh, make for smoother shifts.
1: I'm so curious about how that would affect like the feeling of like you y- you know the stiffness of the crankset or mm-hmm. that kind of like you yeah. know, how would that work? It's right. just like, and it seems like that would put a lot of strain on the, on the chain ring spider right. too.
7: And it would, it'd be interesting to see if this one makes it to market because anytime you adding parts to your drivetrain, you're creating a situation in which you're losing power, uh, to moving parts. And so I don't know how SRAM intends to solve this and, and keep it, you know, feeling really stiff underfoot and, and not losing pedaling power, but it's a really intriguing idea. And I think it's, it's, uh, a, Another step for them in pioneering the the coming wave of one-by drivetrains.
1: Or it might just be another 14-speed drivetrain that never, <laughs> ever comes. Who knows?
0: Well, and then the last patent is by Shimano for DI2 system. And basically, it is being able to shift in the DI2 system, not with buttons, but with your levers. So it is the same lever-actuated motion that you feel in a cable DI2 system, only by putting the levers in that is what is doing the shifting as opposed to pressing the button. So I could see this being marketed to traditionalists who want the cool innovation of DI2, but like that big paddle shift actuator. Nah, I I don't,
1: I don't think this is ever going to come to market, Fred. I think this is them playing defense and trying to avoid another company sort of you know, getting in on, on their, their shift d- design and their shift levers. I mean, I, I can't think of very many people who legitimately complain about the way the Di2 buttons actuate.
7: Well, you guys are missing sort of the big word in all this. Okay. Wireless. Uh, oh, come on, Fred. Yeah. Jeez, you uh, need this is, why, this is why I'm not the tech yeah. editor. Uh, other, other than that, how was the show, Mrs. Lincoln? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> wireless. Uh, this, is, this is Shimano's answer to, to eTap. Uh, and I think that's more intriguing because, once again, it cannot, a patent cannot just be a logical extension of something that already exists, which means that Shimano's got something that is innovative and new here. Uh, so if we're seeing a wireless Shimano Di2, that's a big deal. Uh, and we've heard whispers that we may see this as soon as this year.
1: Mm. Watch out, Stram. Yeah.
7: Keep your eyes open for those patents.
0: Well, Dan, thanks for coming by and enlightening us to, uh, about all things patents and and teaching me what I should be looking for <laughs> when I see these newfangled inventions Keywords. come down the pike. Keywords. <laughs> yeah. This bike's made of aluminum. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Dan. Yeah. Okay. Dane, off the front, off the back, what do you got?
2: Yeah, I'm going to go with American women off the front. We've got two uh, great GC performances by some American women. Uh, Katie Hall taking the overall at Redlands, and she's had a great uh, domestic season so far. And, yeah, uh, third
1: GC win in a row for her.
2: Not bad. Not, not a bad run for her. And, of course, Megan Guarnier taking the tour to Yorkshire on her birthday. Nice little birthday present to herself.
1: Oh, mm, get a bit of pudding by for that way. one, yes. yes. Yeah. Uh,
2: that's not how Megan talks, by the way. That's probably how the people in Yorkshire, I think, prefer, yeah, referred to. So. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah, probably the podium host. Or yeah, yeah, right, right.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, both of those racers, Katie, Katie Hall and Megan Guarnier, will be at the Amgen Women's Race. Uh, it's a three-day event coming up here. We're going to talk a lot more about that in the coming days. And uh, I think they're going to be among the top contenders for that race. Uh, and especially because both of them have done pretty well there in the past.
0: Yeah, that race runs concurrent with the final three days of the men's race. We're going to preview that race next week. Uh, week's episode of the podcast.
2: Yeah, uh, so definitely keep an eye out for those those gals because they've been doing so well so far this season. You know, off the back, I'm, I'm trying to kind of go through some of the guys in the uh, Giro d'Italia time trial who underwhelmed. Louis Menchies is a rider who's been... You know, people have been talking about him as one of these guys to watch for a long time. And he's getting to a point where, all right, it's time to perform, Louie. Mm. He did not do very well in the opening TT the the Girodita. Not that I expected him to do great, but uh, Louis was over a minute down in that opening TT. That is not a great way to start off a race that he is under a little bit of pressure, I think, to, to bring home the, the hardware after being talked about, hyped up for so long.
1: You know, if cycling, cycling had walk-up songs, yeah, his walk-up song would be. What's that? Louis? Louie. Ooh, that, that's a know, good that one classic okay. yeah. yeah i'm into that all right off the front for me is uh religious uh tourism biblical archaeological tourism because a lot of the riders from jiro are heading out to check out the west the the western wall whaling wall one of the walls other stuff around jerusalem i don't know they're doing tourist stuff in jerusalem hopefully they got some cool little uh, tchotchkes to bring home to the family little uh little tourist stuff and Maybe uh, you'll start seeing some amateur riders doing a little more tourism on their race trips from here on because it's like that's what the pros are doing. So that could be the thing to do. Off the back for me, the poor, poor public employees of San Juan having their their names besmirched mm. by two of their riders for the for the so-called uh, public employees of San Juan team. The Argentinian team got two guys from the tour of San Juan that uh, they got popped for doping that was uh Gonzalo Nahar who turns out he won the race yeah. and then uh his buddy uh who's also on the team Gaston Javier uh so bad luck for the public employees of San Juan i'm sure they're going to be reconsidering that sponsorship next year because yeah, the Sarah doping positive, the the um steroid doping positive, not a good
2: look. Yeah, Nahar's only twenty four years old, but clearly he's like into retro stuff going
1: yeah. for the Sarah. Oh, well, you know, the yeah. kids they like neon stuff yeah. like that. So
0: yeah. Nahar crushed that race. Yeah. Mm. He won that difficult very difficult stage by I believe over two, two minutes. minutes. Yeah.
1: yeah, he beat Oscar Sevilla by fifty one seconds in the overall.
0: Yeah. yeah. And Sevilla, you know,
1: like, he's a real straight shooter.
0: Oscar Sevilla has won that race, so congrats to him Uh, for his longevity in the sport. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, 41-year-old. My off the front this week, Amber Nieben, she won the Pan American Championships Individual Time Trial Crown, which gives her an automatic bid for Worlds and just does great stuff for America. Go USA! Amber Nieben, proving herself to be an American hero Yet again, I have a second off the front, which is to oh, Thomas Rivard of the uh, Action Hoggins Hugg- Berman Action Team for winning the men's Redlands race. Because, you know, that's a tough race. Even though domestic stage races have taken a bit of a step backwards, you got to, you know, you got to still win up Oak Glen. And that's what uh, Rivard did. Off the back, though. Oh, man, that would be. Big Bear weather in Mm. May.
1: Yeah. Mm. Canceled the first stage for him there. Big old
0: snowstorm. Uh, I've been up to Big Bear. It's lovely. I love the trails up there. But unfortunately, they had an untimely snowstorm roll in, cancel that opening time trial of the uh, Redlands Bicycle Classic. They should have just done the original time trial. Anyone ever go out to see that one? It was like climbing a hill in a suburb. Mm. Yeah. Sounds nice. It was really quite scenic. Hmm. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Real relatable For the average cyclist though. That's true though That's your ride We've home We've all been there That's your ride home To your house That's
0: Yeah. True. Well we would love Your feedback On what we talked about today You can email us At webletters At pocketoutdoormedia.com We'll also post links To the stories We talked about today On News.com. Subscribe to the News Podcast On iTunes, Stitcher Or Google Play And while you're there Please leave us a comment And a rating Become a fan of News On Facebook Or Facebook.com And follow us on Twitter At twitter.com The News Podcast Is produced by Bellinews, which is owned by Pocket Outdoor Media. The thoughts and opinions expressed on the Bell podcast
7: are those of the individual. And as always, we leave you with a little Boogaloo blowout. Playing Bernard pretty classic Soul Drum.